0: In 1997, well before tablets and smartphones, Apple co-founder Steve Jobs shocked the standing-room-only crowd at Macworld Boston by announcing that arch-rival Microsoft was about to become the company's savior. The announcement followed 18 consecutive months of losses at Apple, leaving the company just weeks away from insolvency. Microsoft's $150 million investment pulled Apple from the breach. Fast forward to 2015— and Apple was the 12th largest public company in the world, with a market value of $742 billion. Microsoft ranked 25th. Today, we'll hear from Professor Mihir Desai about his case entitled, Financial Policy at Apple, 2013. I'm your host, Brian Kenny, and you're listening to Cold Call.
1: So we are all sitting there in the classroom. The professor walks in. And, and they look up, and you know it's coming. Oh, the dreaded cold call.
0: Mihir Desai teaches in the MBA, doctoral, and executive programs at Harvard Business School, and he's an expert in tax policy, international finance, and corporate finance, all of which matter in this case. Mihir, thanks for joining me. Thanks so much, Brian. It's a pleasure to be here. So I'll start the way that I normally start these, which is to ask you to set the case up for us.
1: What's the opening? So it's a terrific situation at Apple in 2013. They are obviously very successful by both measures. But uh, on the product side, they're very successful. But it turns out they're facing incredible capital markets pressure. Um, So the firm has been doing very, very well. But cash has been piling up at Apple in a way that is remarkable. Hundreds of billions of dollars are piling up inside the corporation. And shareholders are starting to get angry. Mm. And so two shareholders in particular, uh, David Einhorn and Carl Icahn, are protesting. They're saying, give us the cash. And they're saying it loudly. And they're saying it more and more loudly. And Cook and Jobs have to really think through um, whether or not to give them the cash, and if so, how. Mm -hmm. So it's a great story about uh, an iconic corporation uh, being pushed by capital markets to change the way they think about finance.
0: And the protagonist here is none other than Cook
1: himself. Exactly, and he's got to figure out whether the policy that Jobs had, which was effectively— to say okay shareholders whatever we, you know we take care of the cash don't bother us too much mm-hmm. but pressure has been rising and yeah. cook obviously at that time didn't have the stature that jobs had and we should and, say that sitting on a pile of cash is a first world problem to it have. is a first world problem to have but it's a, it's a high class problem but a problem nonetheless as they yeah. say yeah. um and so it turns out that the shareholders were getting angry enough to start floating proposals that you know we will issue these securities and you will have to be able to give us the cash in this way right. so cook can no longer um, uh, ignore them. What prompted you to write this case? Why did you settle on this as a, as a case to write? I was struck by uh, a number of developments in the capital markets. And I think Apple's situation is uh, paradigmatic of something that's going on that's much larger. Mm. And that larger trend that is happening is large amounts of cash inside corporations, increasing pressure to disgorge that cash, management feeling pressure to do that via dividends and share repurchases. Mm-hmm. And we are now living in an age that I like to characterize as a slow-motion LBO of America, which Mm -hmm. is it's an age characterized by borrowing and buying back shares. Mm -hmm. And Apple, uh, a remarkably successful company, gets pushed into that same trend over the time period since the case, they have effectively levered up and bought back an enormous amount of shares. So I thought it was representing something very big that's happening in capital markets. And then, of course, anything with Apple is just enormous amounts of fun. Yeah, it's such a well-known brand. Did you spend time there? Were you actually in the Apple offices? Well, so I went uh, after I wrote the case. Apple has... Uh, I don't think Apple has ever cooperated with the case, and so. Uh, but after I wrote the case, they called me, and I went out there and I talked to a bunch of folks there. It was really interesting and really fun. Mm-hmm. Um, but they are uh, they're they're quite tight lipped on these questions. So Apple, uh,
0: as successful as they have been in the last two decades, uh, which is remarkable, uh, the amount of success that they've had, they haven't always been successful. They've had some struggles. Can you just sort of briefly tell the, our listeners uh, the kinds of challenges they face? Because I think it's ancient history. There's a whole generation that's grown
1: up not knowing about this. Right. So 20 years ago, it turns out to be ancient history. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's absolutely right. So from near bankruptcy, they get saved. And then they become this company which starts developing products that are iconic, You know, beginning with Uh, Of course, the iPod, and then moving into uh, the phone, and then the tablets. And during that time, they both become iconic for product reasons, which I think most people understand. Mm -hmm. But the first part of the case discussion that we have with this case is you get to understand how they are not just remarkable from products. They are remarkable financially. Mm -hmm. And there is a financial model embedded in Apple that is incredible, which probably stems from that near-death experience. So for example, um, their profitability is remarkable. Their growth is remarkable. That isn't that surprising. You look a little deeper, and you realize they are a cash flow machine. Mm -hmm. They run a working capital cycle like you wouldn't believe. Uh, They are asset light in a remarkable way. They are effectively operating with zero net assets. Mm -hmm. And they are borrowing from – they're being financed effectively by their suppliers. So these folks are doing something financially – which is very novel and makes the economic model they have even more powerful than just making great products and making great profits. They turned out to have a huge cash flow machine running that is, I think, unprecedented.
0: Yeah, You talk in the case a little bit about their tax structure, too. And uh, I know this is something that you've spoken about, even on Capitol
1: Hill, the idea of repatriation uh, of, of taxes. Can yeah. you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So the other piece here is this cash that has been piling up. One of the reasons is it's mostly in Ireland. Mm. So at the time of the case, uh, 90 to $120 billion of it is in Ireland. And the reason it's in Ireland is those are the profits from all around the world that have been funneled to Ireland, which pay basically a zero tax. The issue is, why is it still in Ireland? And the answer, of course, is the U.S. says, if you bring it back to the U.S., we will tax you at mm-hmm. our tax rate. And in fact, one of the great things about this case that happened right around that same time is Tim Cook gets called to the Senate to testify and says, what are you doing? Why aren't you bringing back your $100 billion, Uh, because after the case gets resolved, he actually borrows money to do Mm -hmm. all these payouts. (laughs) And the senators are not terribly happy. And it leads to this fantastic scene, because Tim Cook goes to the Senate, and he testifies. And it's a wonderful scene, because all the senators are there. uh, And you're expecting a big interrogation. And the first thing, of course, that happens is the senators... Uh, ask him how to use their iPhone <laughs> and then proceed to interrogate him. And Cook says very clearly, you know, you fix your policy and I'll bring back the cash. Mm-hmm. Why would I bring back my cash and pay a 35% rate when I can borrow in the capital markets at 2%? Uh, so Cook really played it hard. Um, and he, his point was, we are the largest American taxpayer." We yeah. pay all our American taxes. $16 million a day, I think, is what they It's said. remarkable numbers. Yeah. And so um, he basically says, look, these are profits that are effectively from products we sold in Germany and China and in India. And so it's not clear why you should be concerned. Mm-hmm. And if you figure out your policy problems, as you know, the U.S. tax system on foreign income has become the subject of a remarkable amount of contention. It's leading to mergers and acquisitions that don't make sense. It's leading to a lot of big problems. Mm-hmm. Uh, Apple's decision to become the largest borrower in capital markets. After the case, it reflects the fact that now dominant transactions in the M&A market, in the capital markets are being driven by tax considerations. How did they get so good at this? I mean, they're they're just a company that makes products
0: and devices and things.
1: Well, so it is interesting, right? So I think there's two things to say. One is they, and Tim Cook in particular, of course, has been a supply chain person. Mm -hmm. And so they quickly understood the power of a really good supply chain, and that leads to this economic model that is remarkable. A, your suppliers are so happy to be doing business with you that they're willing to finance you. Um, they were willing to hold all your inventory. And it turns out this large retailer, one of the largest retailers in the world, has three days of inventory. Mm -hmm. No retailer operates with three days of inventory. And yeah. that leads to this remarkable cash conversion cycle. So I think it was embedded in the idea of doing the supply chain in the way they did, that they would also have this remarkable cash mm-hmm. f- cash flow uh, characteristic associated with it. And then the asset intensity as well. You know, Going back to your original question, Brian, I think there is something about near-death experiences, <laughs> which change the way you operate. And they are tough. And they operate financially in a very savvy way. To me, it's when I've gone out there, it's been remarkable. Uh, Senior management is involved in many, many financial decisions at a micro level. They Mm. run a very tight ship, despite the fact that they're swimming in cash and swimming in profits. It's a very disciplined company in that way. And I think it also uh,
0: shines a light a little bit on the decision to put Tim Cook into that job after Steve Jobs uh, left. And then, uh, you know, I think he was such a cult of personality. And I think the question was always, who could possibly replace him? Tim is a very different type of leader, but clearly somebody who they sought out for a very specific reason.
1: Yeah. And I think this is something that we see in other companies, too. Um, so Amazon has a similar cash flow model. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dell, of course, does. They don't like to talk about it too much because they want to talk about the customer. <laughs> but uh, underneath it all, uh, these, these companies are both uh, very prominent because they are taking market share in dramatic ways, but they have an economic model that allows them to finance their growth in very effective ways, mm-hmm. so there's a whole capital market strategy there. Uh, you know, Bezos and Amazon is another good example of it. Uh, they quote unquote don't make any profits, yeah. except they make a ton of cash, <laughs> right. and they make it, uh, you know, from uh, mostly from uh, from their suppliers, and so mm-hmm. that is a really it's a whole different model that I think is emerging. Interesting. So well, let's get back to the drama of this case
0: because I think really where the tension comes is when the activist shareholders get involved. And this is something that we're seeing play out uh, really in many different uh, sec- sectors. Um, Absolutely. Let's talk
1: about how it was playing out in this case. So uh, it, it's playing out here as it is all over the economy, which is large activist shareholders taking stakes and then pressuring in this particular case for the disgorging of cash. Mm-hmm. And in a way, that's what's fun about this case, because you would think, uh, who would take on Apple? Uh, And sure enough, there's somebody who's willing to do it. (laughs) And they did it very effectively. And in part, what they did is they took a stake. But the larger thing they did is they floated a proposal, and it had all the bells and whistles that you would expect. So, for example, it was called an iPREF. Mm-hmm. They even put an I in front just yeah. to make sure that— a lowercase, it, a I, lowercase I. A lowercase I to make sure everybody got the idea that Apple should issue a new security, which would effectively allow them to disgorge all this cash in a tax-efficient way. But by drawing attention to it, this cash hoard, they kind of compelled ultimately Cook to kind of do something. So David Einhorn held a large press conference. Mm. He said, here, we got to do this I-pref, and it'll unlock— almost, you know, close to $150 a share when the share price was $450. Mm -hmm. So he had a big claim that if we just did this, it would work. Of course, you know, underneath it all, he's really just trying to draw attention to this cash hoard and get them to start distributing it in dividends and repurchases. Right. What was Apple's reaction to that proposal? So one of the nice things in the case is It traces the reactions over several conference calls. And so the first conference call, you know, Apple's pretty tough. They're like, we get to do what we want with the cash. The second conference call, (laughs) you know, the questions become a little more insistent. And then the third conference call, the questions are becoming more insistent, like, where is the cash? And so uh, initially they rebuffed it and they never directly addressed it. Of course, ultimately what happens at the end of the case is Apple buckles and Mm -hmm. they become... Uh, one of the largest dividend payers, and one of the largest share repurchasers in history, and it's all funded by some of the largest capital markets borrowings in history, and I think you're right. It, it highlights this larger pressure on firms to satisfy activists and disgorge cash in very large ways, which mm-hmm. which can be fantastic news, um, or you know could be quite destructive news. Yeah. yeah, you've taught this case in class. I have several times. It's enormous fun. And it goes in a really nice way, which is the first part, is just to have people realize that there's a financial model underneath the products. So it's just kind of an appreciation for God. This is what they've built. Right. And then the second part is, um, why are they sitting on so much cash? And then you get to see this cash machine, and you get to see the asset intensity of the business. And then the question becomes, well, how much cash could they disgorge? Mm-hmm. And it turns out, under even like worst-case scenarios, because some people think, well, we have to hold cash, because yeah. something bad could happen. Right. Well, you, you need the capacity to innovate. We hear that all the time. Exactly right. Although that logic becomes less clear when you're holding $200 billion of cash. <laughs> and you know the exercise we run through is, well, let's say they don't sell anything yeah. for two years, which is an absurd example. Um, they can still disgorge. They can mm-hmm. still run the company for two years, if they, and they can still disgorge $80 billion of cash. Now, the second exercise is, having disgorged all that cash, they're going to build it back up, In about four years. Mm -hmm. And so there's just this enormous feeling that, well, God, actually we could disgorge it and we could do it really effectively. Uh, And then the final part is um, this dividend and share repurchase and iPref comparison. So it's an opportunity to think about capital distributions, cash distribution policy, um, and why the iPref thing that David Einhorn does is a little bit of smoke and mirrors. Mm -hmm. And why, even if it is smoke and mirrors, it might be effective because people all of a sudden say, hey— that is a lot of cash they're sitting yeah, on, yeah. and why aren't they giving it back to us? So his um, logic is kind of flawed, and I'm sure he knew that. It was a little smoke and mirrors. But he ends up kind of succeeding just by shining a light and pressuring yeah. them uh, to do what he has asked them to do.
0: Well, I think every CEO should run out and get a copy of this case. Uh, I'm all for that. That's it's really good. Thank you, Mihir, for joining us. My pleasure. You can find this case along with thousands of others in the HBS Case Collection at hbr.org. I'm Brian Kenny and you've been listening to Cold Call the official podcast of Harvard Business School.